This is CliffCentral.com. CliffCentral.com on another Thursday afternoon, which means it's time for another edition of Between Two Femmes with myself, Mabali Muloy. Hello, thank you for joining us. And Aspasia Karas, who is joining us all the way from... Which part of the world are you Greece, in today? Greece. Why are, you in, why are you in Greece this time I around? I'm visiting the parentals who live here. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. When was the last uh, time you saw your parents? About a year ago. Oh, so, yeah, you see. You know. So how long are you going to be there? You have to visit them. You must. Um, two weeks, two weeks. Um, what is the weather like in Greece at the moment? The I mean, don't you always have divine hot, weather there hot. anyway, like all year round? You guys no, no, don't no, really don't know. No, no, you all year round. <laughs> <laughs> you have it specifically now in summer. <laughs> right. But I have to say it's, it's pretty idyllic. But I, mean, um, but I mean, with it being an island nation and all of that, and uh, yeah. I mean, your, your winters aren't really extreme, are they? Or am I just completely uninformed? It snowed on this island, summers. <sighs> It ah. snowed this December. My parents sent me pictures. <laughs> so, yes. Okay. Well, that's lovely. You know what? Um, have a good time for all of us in Greece, why don't you? I'll try. I'll try. I'll try. But you know what? Let's get, uh, let's get straight Started. into, let's get straight into the, into what's been happening in the news and specifically the women's news because it has been another busy week. I don't know if you've heard this whole debacle surrounding Oscar Pistorius, but you know, that's just a mention because he was meant to be released into yes. house arrest tomorrow. Now he's not, you know, and, um, a day or two ago, there was a women's movement that, 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 that basically submitted a petition to Minister Michael Masuta saying, Oh, but why is he being released during women's month? And now they're saying he won't it's, be released it's tomorrow. Interesting. I mean, it's not a strategic moment to release him, is it? Jeez, just... But will there be anything right? Like, I mean, is there any moment that seems appropriate to release this fella? I don't know. Well, I, you know, the general consensus seems to be that people don't think that he's done enough time behind bars. And you know how people, you know how we get with our feelings and we're all about our feelings right now. You know, we really just yeah. want to see this guy suffer. But you know what? That is not actually what I wanted to talk about with regards to the women's news. You will remember a couple of weeks ago, um, there was uh, an activist group who called themselves the Impact Team. And they made this threat to release all the personal information of everybody who is uh, signed up with AshleyMedicine.com, which is the, you know, the yes. website where you get to... Yes, that was like... <laughs> where you get to... For all those people who have been playing off peace. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So then a day ago, the Impact team followed up on their threat. Boom, they've now released all these names, all 37 million names of the members around the world who have subscribed to Ashley Madison. But here's what happened since they released the names. Millions of panicked Ashley Madison members and their spouses have basically crashed the Internet trying to find out whether their uh, private details have been made public online. And what level of stuff have they actually released, Mabs? Like, have they released a name or have they released, like... Uh, a history As a profile, Sia, what it, these people were saying I mean is it embarrassing stuff like your Tinder profile <laughs> you know what <laughs> they've released names they have released uh, secret fantasies that people love to delve into when they, whenever they're on this website but you also get a sense of just exactly which parts of the world are using Ashley Madison the most which I, which I think is interesting 
So um, hardly surprising, the, the, the biggest number of people who are registered to Ashley Madison are in North America. That, that's not really surprising, <laughs> right? I think that's where the website was launched. There are a lot of them, and they're, they're, they have their needs. <laughs> <laughs> then you've got parts of Canada. Um, and then you go to Europe, which seems to be the next place where Ashley Madison um, is very popular. You've got parts of Asia, also a little bit into Australia, and then also quite a large uh, proportion of South America. Uh, How big is the South African and African contingent? Well, you know what? Um, in terms of the continent, we are, you know, we show the least number of subscribers to the website. But within the huh. continent, South Africa obviously, obviously has the most <laughs> numbers. So now you've had all these people crashing the internet, panicked, trying to search exactly what information has been made public out there and whether or not uh. their husbands or wives have now found out this information that, oops, I'm yep. on Ashley Madison. And can you delete it once it's been made public? I I, you know what? As far as I understand, these websites have very strict privacy laws. So I don't know yeah. if they've deleted. I, I don't know if you can delete such. I don't know. But there you go. Uh, uh, and there, right there is the problem. Hey? Yeah. With joining this sort of um, <laughs> thing and putting your information up on the interwebs. Well, it's not you so discreet. really cannot trust the fact that it's, people say it's private. It's not as discreet this, as they advertise, yeah. is it? No, clearly not. Uh, they got seriously hacked. But now, um, this week, also pretty dramatically, um, there is finally a drug called Addy. I know what and this is. From Sprout Pharmaceuticals, which is the first drug approved to treat a flagging or absent libido for either sex. So... I mean, there's been a lot of drugs for, for the males, well, namely Viagra, mm-hmm. which, which, and, and, and stuff to treat testosterone deficiencies for men, but nothing for women. Um, and so it's, it's very interesting. The drug has been approved. And, and really what's interesting for me is that the way they got this drug through was by the, the pharmaceutical company used a lot of women's groups across the states. Um, as a coalition called Even the Score in order <laughs> okay. to to give women a drug that would improve their sex lives because they said it was long overdue because men, you know, had so many options. But now, uh, is this for all, I mean, you, you mentioned for both men and women, but is this for all women to, to improve it generally or is this for women who specifically suffer to well, orgasm? Yeah, this is the interesting thing about this stuff is that there's a lot of a real debate about whether there is such a thing as female sexual dysfunction um, because essentially, like when they did the tests on the stuff, and this is the third time that they've applied and now it's finally through because of all this pressure from the women's groups, um, really the, the tests were kind of not that clear in the sense that, you know, I think women reported more satisfied sexual experiences of 4.4 per week versus 3.9 per week who oh, were so, on so these, the like sort of placebo. Well, then these aren't so, substantial increases. Listen, I mean, I was like 4.4 times a week. These people don't have a sexual dysfunction <laughs> problem. What are we talking about? <laughs> That's why, <laughs> you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people are having like wild, crazy sex, but if they're having it 4.4 times a week, they're fine. 
the real question though is how many women are I'm going sorry. to maybe maybe i'm just being very facetious no, no, but no. i just think i just i don't see the problem no i hear you but the real i think the real society has made us sick that's why we're all on ashley madison or whoever was and now they're all panicking the real question is um how many of us women are going to be rushing out to get this drug as soon as it is available on prescription that's what i want to know and i suppose that's what a lot of guys want to know as well is well they need to be very careful because the other thing is that there's a big boxed warning the strongest kind it says because the drug should not be used by those who drink alcohol so go figure maybe the <laughs> and it increases fainting i actually i want to laugh i mean you know, <laughs> what you, like like you want to faint away like and, back and in the sex. i don't know like back in the, in the 1800s where women yeah. wore corsets and then they they would their air supply would get cut off and they they would faint uh, okay. Well, you know what, Aspasia, let's leave it at that in the women's news because unfortunately we have run out of time and we need to get straight into um, the issues that you and I want to discuss today. Firstly, um, we're going to be talking to Professor Anita Bosch, who has, among other things, written an article basically laying out in terms of exact figures, the wage disparity mm-hmm. between men and women. This is another story that's been ongoing in the yes. news. But she says that the gender pay gap in South Africa is definitely estimated between 15 and 17%. Right. But before we get to Professor Anita Bosch, let's talk to Marise Barak, who is with the Barak Learning and Development Consultants. Marise, can you hear me? Hello, Marise. Hi, Marise, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Oh, fantastic. Marise, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Right. Hello, Marise from <laughs> Greece. Uh, Marise, let's let's get straight into it, and um, maybe you could give us a, a bit more clarity on what exactly it is that you do as as a business. You're with the Barack Learning and Development Consultants. What exactly is it that that you and your team do? Well, most of my work is focused on leadership development in large organizations, multinationals, and ones right here in South Africa. And with mostly I work with intact teams, senior executive teams, to enable them to create the conditions where very good quality thinking can happen so that the meetings they have, the decisions they make, the actions they choose are of superb quality and are very inclusive um, in the way in which they discuss them. So that's one part. And then the other part of my work is one-on-one executive coaching. And I think that's why I wanted to chat with you because I was like, if you're an executive or any kind of woman in any stage of her career and you suddenly discover that um, you've been paid 15 to 17% less than your male colleagues, Mm-hmm. What are the kinds of steps that you should be thinking about in your own personal career development to kind of not necessarily rectify this, but make sure that it doesn't happen to you? Yeah, that's great. Well, I think if you discover that, you would have quite a bit of work to do internally to get over being so angry at the actual unfairness of it and the way that the system continues to work in this way. Um, in a way that people aren't even too aware of. But after you've done some initial work, it would depend on what what do you want to do about it? What would you choose to do? And if one of the choices 
is to confront and say, this doesn't work for me. Um, I need to at least have an equitable salary or whatever it is. Then very often there is a lot of internal work to do because I think many women still carry a number of limiting assumptions that say you actually aren't good enough and are you really pulling your weight or whatever it is. And we, many of us, live with those assumptions as if they are true and they are not true. So a lot of my work with women executives is about beginning to be challenged and honest enough to reveal the kind of internal assumptions that would limit their actions, their demands, their requests, and begin to look at them and start testing them, because so many of them, as I said, aren't true, and begin to craft questions that would empower them to then take whatever steps they choose to do in the circumstances. So can I give you an example for you? Yes. So if you do work with the the question that if I knew that my contribution is genuinely valuable, how Mm -hmm. would I ask and demand that my salary is equivalent to my male colleague? If I knew that my contribution was really equivalent and of value, how would I go ahead and do that? So that, what that does is begins to insert a different assumption that is empowering and a bit more liberating because we have a lot of conditioning, all of us, men and women, to get beyond in order to create a, an equitable society. I mean, part of it, as, as, as I listen to you, is that I think I've always, as, as a woman, been taught that I have to be polite I have to be nice. I have to be charming. And so, you know, otherwise people call me a bitch in my organization, you know, and, and, and as an editor, I also have the added assumption that people do think naturally I would be a bitch. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. All those, and, and, and so you've got to play with all those terrible assumptions that kind of limit, obviously limit the way I would ask for a salary raise, which I have to say I've never been able to do. Okay, that's great. So I think that those assumptions that you've mentioned absolutely exist everywhere there. And the problem with them existing is that we take them on and own them. And so that's the voice that gets repeated internally. You are a bit, you are not good enough. Look at how, etc. So do you think it's true? No, it's not true. And I would ask you, what are your reasons for saying that it's not true? And, well, because you know how to talk straight, because you are worthwhile, because you are valuable, because you learn well, because you actually deserve it. And so if we begin to insert those kind of assumptions, you can still be the kind of you or any woman that you do want. There's nothing wrong with being charming um, as long as you are direct and clear about what you need, what you want, and what you deserve. But I think it takes some internal work to shift the perspective so that we begin to ask for what is rightly ours in ways that would not be little or disempower anybody else. Marise, um, historically, you know, the, the office or the boardroom has been a, a male-dominated area. And so are we finding that it's mostly women who are having to... 
um, change the way that they behave or, you know, kind of learn new skills so that they can fit into this environment? Or are you also coaching men to sort of also change their way of thinking and their way of um, approaching situations so that there's this sort of um, harmonious existence between men and women in the workplace? I do coach men. I suppose it's half-half, really. And most of my work, sadly, in a way, in South Africa, when you work with top teams, most of them are men. Um, But what I am very gratified about are many, many of the men leaders that I work with have an extraordinarily broad perspective. They are incredibly willing to not only learn, but from their own experience have adopted values that are far more inclusive. And so I think this is a collective responsibility that we have. How do we give each other the quality of attention that would really bring out the best in one another? How do we begin to engage the particular qualities that women bring, naturally so, because we've been conditioned, so we're good at some qualities in the same way that men are very good at some others? How do we begin to bring those into the boardroom? Because the decisions we have to make these days are far more complex, have to do, have need an extraordinary amount of diverse perspectives so that we can collaborate fully. So, yeah, um, men and women, in my experience, are incredibly open, willing, uh, because what we're facing in the world is tough. It really is. Maurice, I don't know if you've read the, the, the New York Times like expose of the working culture at Amazon, which I thought was striking in two ways. The one was that Amazon apparently um, has no woman in its executive, um, unlike many of the other sort of big tech companies. And the other thing was just how absolutely unforgiving their working culture was about like sort of spending extreme amounts of hours per day, et cetera, et cetera. And so people were saying that maybe that is why they don't. So when women felt pregnant, there were certain examples that they were talking about where women had had, women executives in the teams had had uh, miscarriages and were expected to come back the very next day and carry on. And if they didn't, um, so so they were, it, it sounded like a, a very unforgiving workplace for everyone. Mm. But... I, it, it struck me that those are typical assumptions about women in the workplace. Well, they're going to fall pregnant and they'll go home and they won't actually invest, you know, in, in, in their working environment and therefore let's pay them 15% less. Mm. Well, I, did, I, re, I heard about the Amazon article. I actually myself didn't read it. I think structurally in many of the organizations, um, depending where, where you are, which country you are. In Europe, many of the organizations have superb structures to encourage their women to have their babies, be at home for six months, and then return hmm. to the workplace. Um, they also have paternity leave for the dads. There's also leave if you have adopted a baby. So there's a huge recognition of that. In South Africa, I think we lag quite far behind, and the state certainly lags far behind um, any of these. I think this is quite a big boundary to, you know, overcome this, why should I spend money on you? You may decide to have another child and leave. 
I think that is a real you know, barrier. And I think there again, clear, open conversations. In my coaching, I have met with women who are frightened to say, mm-hmm. I'm pregnant. And not only that, but then if a year or two later they have another child, they are embarrassed. And I, even just saying that out loud, you know, is an appalling indictment of the system that's been designed to say you actually don't matter as much. So I think we do have a lot of work to do and to recognize that what are the kind of models we want to be able to teach others that we can. We can do this, we can do that, we can have free choice, and we can be superbly valuable, and we can begin to design a kind of a workplace life that includes the diversity of our responsibilities. I think it's possible. I think people have been known to do it. But uh, it's not an easy one. There's no question about that. Maurice, you mentioned that we do have a lot of work to do and that South Africa, in comparison to other parts of the world, are lagging far behind. But you know what? We could talk about the problems that we actually have in the workplace until we're blue in the face. What exactly is it going to take, though? What do we need to start physically doing on a daily basis? What are the kind of conversations that we need to be having? I mean, this is where you come in because you move into these workspaces and you coach people and you teach them certain skills. So what exactly do we need to start doing on a daily basis? Very, very basically (laughs) is, to be quite honest, I know this may sound ridiculously basic, and although it's simple, it's certainly not easy. What we know is that all of us, all of us, think well for ourselves when we are being genuinely treated well while we are thinking. So what's the first step is to say, well, what does it look like to treat each other really well? Because if we do that, we're going to begin to create a work culture where the quality of the thinking is good and is inclusive and is diverse. And if the quality of the thinking is good, then the quality of the actions that people take is good. And the quality of the structures that they begin to design for their business is good. But to be quite honest, it begins with behavior and with intention. And this isn't just a fluffy thing. It means how do we pay attention to each other? That's superb. How do we generate an experience of equality, even in a hierarchy? How do we welcome the feelings that people have? Uh, Because feelings also are intelligent. How do we encourage one another to go beyond the usual way of thinking? So it may not be quite the answer you were looking for, but I... (laughs) Well, in a way, I think it's a very excellent answer, but it almost starts with yourself. Like you in your own person have to kind of think well about yourself. Yeah, but that needs others. So one of the big pieces of work I do in organizations, to be quite honest, is to begin to give them the practices and tools of how to listen to each other with the deepest respect because listening itself is an igniter of thinking. The way in which we listen to each other begins to develop self-esteem and confidence in one another. Um, And so that's a lot of my work, because if you want good conversations, you have to have superb generative listening. Marise Barak is with the Barak Learning and Development Consultants. Thank you so much for your time, Marise.
keep doing the good work that you do. It sounds it sounds like uh, like difficult, but definitely necessary work because you know we need to go in there and we need to, as you said, change attitudes and change the way that we approach things and the way that we start implementing things in the workspace. So thank and you very listen, much. And listen. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you. This was a pleasure indeed. Fantastic. Cheers. Thank you very much. That's Maurice Maurice Barak with the Barak Learning and Development Consultants. Oh, interesting, interesting, Mubs, because I, I mean, I, I certainly I was listening to the Ruth first lecture and I thought, I don't know if you heard all about that last yes, I week. Yes, did. Were you actually there? No, I just, I, I streamed it. Oh, I'm okay. like ahead of the curve. Uh, no, I thought you, were, <sighs> you, I thought that you were in attendance. So, I mean, what, what did you take, a, take away from the Ruth first lecture? Because I saw it trending it, all over um, Twitter. It was trending, but I thought what was most important was what Marie's is saying is mm. actually listen because I think there are a lot of feelings. We had Panache on the show. I don't know if you remember, and she was giving a talk on she the. She is on, with Vanguard magazine. Yeah. Yes, and and so it was very interesting. I think listening is crucial. It's step one because you can listen defensively, and then I thought actually you just have to listen open-mindedly to what people are actually saying. You know, listening is possibly one of the most difficult things because I think the most uh, that most of us really just want to have our voices heard. And so we're focusing so much on being heard and getting our points across that we don't actually listen to what the other person is saying. So you're absolutely right in that regard. Maybe we must have her back. <laughs> absolutely. We can listen to her some more. But, you know, who we will have next is Professor Anita Bosch, and we're going to get into the um, the messy business of exactly what the situation looks like for us as South Africans here. You know, we keep hearing about all these stats and figures about the disparity of uh, of how, you know, wage um, and salaries. Wage, wage. Wages uh, and salaries between men disparity. and women. So we're going to get straight into that. And we're also going to ask the important question is, oh, well, then how do we fix it? Because, yes, we know that the problem is there and it exists. But what do we need to start doing to actually correct this? So that's coming up next on Between Two Femmes right here on clipcentral.com. Here we go. Central.com with another edition of Between Two Femmes as it is a Thursday afternoon. And uh, my partner in crime, Aspasia Karas, joining us via Skype from Greece. <laughs> uh, you know what? I can just picture you lying in some long, flowy dress and you probably I'm have... in my bikini. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and you probably have a cocktail in hand with your sunglasses <laughs> on and a big old sun hat and life is I just I can't have a cocktail in hand. We're talking about <laughs> the gender pay gap. It's very serious. Indeed, we are talking about the gender pay gap this afternoon and joining us right now is Professor Anita Bosch. Uh, Professor Anita Bosch, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and thank you very much for your time, Professor. Now, um, hello, Professor. Among among, <laughs> among many other things, Professor, you've recently re- written a column for the Conversation dot com about um, exactly what the situation is when it comes to wage and salary disparities between men and women. And so let me begin by asking you flat out, how, how is the situation looking? Is it very, very bleak? Has it, has it progressed over, over some time? Or is it not as, as bad as we might think? Well, I think one has to uh, qualify. Um, it depends on what database and data set you look at. So 
the one data set that we um, uh, receive information from is from private remuneration company with well-governed remuneration structures in place. And there the disparity, uh, the differences is on average between 15 to 17% in South Africa. If you look at the SADC gender barometer, it refers to uh, the gender gap report 2014. Therefore, on average, nationally, it's reckoned that um, women earn 52% of a man's um, income. So, um, you know, it really depends what data said. Obviously, we're working with averages, and um, that does not account for job-specific differences, which is what the difficulty is in exactly pinpointing a particular uh, pay gap. Um, if you look at South Africa in relation to the rest of the world, though, um, you know, again, depending on what, what statistics you draw from, there remains a gender gap and, and a relatively large one. So the, the countries that have a smaller gap or less than 10% is Belgium and New Zealand. Um, but then most of the other countries go, you know, have larger gaps than that. For instance, in the UK, women earn 85% of a man's salary. In South Korea and Japan, the gap's wider, it's more than 30%. Um, so in general, there is this disparity and, and you know, people very quickly ask, um, isn't it just because women work shorter hours than men, which is also an assumption, um, you know, that, that is, that is made. Yeah. And yes, certainly that, that does contribute to this, but it's, it's, it's much more complex than that. Um, you know, there's a lot of issues around, for instance, the value of skills, because remember, you get paid for what your skill set is worth to an employer. And so the, the value, the monetary value, the economic value that's attached to a woman's skill set versus that of a man, there we already see differences. We see differences in recruitment practices just based on job specifications, and job specifications ultimately lead to um, job analysis, which leads to the salary structure. So there's very real structural issues that are gendered. I mean, essentially, yeah. what I was struck by was that you women would need to work two more months than a man to earn the equivalent salary. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> that, that, is, and, that is just a shocking <laughs> idea. Well, it's unacceptable. And when you, when you quantify, you know, people say to me, okay, 15 or 17%, that's not so much. But when you start quantifying it in terms of numbers, or if you look at the gender barometer one, which is even worse, and you say for every 200 rand that a man earns, a woman earns 104 rand. I mean, that's, that's very real figures. And, and ultimately what we're seeing is that this, um, in South Africa we have more households that are headed by women than by men. Mm. So that means that more households are really uh, dumped into poverty um, because of, for instance, amongst other aspects, this, this pay gap aspect. Um, you know, and, and uh, when women grow older and have to go on to pension, uh, the fact that they've earned over a lifetime less than a male, um, even though that, that those particular studies in the U.S. have been controlled for experience and, and educational level as well. So irrespective of whether they have the same level of experience or education, they earn less than men, and so that leads to poverty in old age. So there's very real issues attached to this that um, we should be cognizant of, and I'm really happy to say that the Employment Equity Act has strengthened 
um, you know, has been strengthened at the end of last year, which was really the impetus for writing the report. Professor Bosch, I've often heard people say, yeah, well, but, you know, men are more valuable in the workforce anyway, for one thing. They're not, you know, costing the company or losing time because of of maternity leave, for example. Men are more task-oriented. They're more aggressive in the workspace. And really, why are women even complaining? They should just, like, shut up and deal with it. And, and so what do you, you know, what do you, what do you say to those kinds of mindsets? Yeah, you get a lot of that on social media. I must say the comments that one gets to the articles that come out are, are you know, borderline um, stereotypical and, and sexist, quite frankly. Um, and, and that's very indic- indicative of a population that's very bound by social norms. Um, so the first thing is uh, what we do know, for instance, from studies, if we talk about task-orientated and so forth, is that women tend to be much more conscientious than men. Um, you know, and there are various other aspects that if you really want to go into the gender wars, you could highlight that's really useful in the workplace in terms of having women employees. If you want to use the argument of pregnancy, then you really are ignoring how society develops. And you uh, and you burdening women <laughs> for that. Yes. Point of fact. <laughs> exactly. like surely you need to reproduce it at some point. <laughs> yes, exactly. And um, you know, you see the patterns in in Europe, for instance, where there's an aging population and and the the younger population just not having kids anymore, um, for a lot of these reasons um, that's associated, for instance, to pay and work in general, um, and and that you have difficulty now upholding pension fund schemes because there's just no young people contributing to it, for instance. So um, pregnancy in itself is an issue that's normal. It's not an anomaly. And uh, because of the history of the workplace and how it's developed over time uh, and the fact that women and men and children were actually included in the workplace at the Industrial Revolution, um, but later, you know, left... Uh, and obviously women left with children because there was nobody to take care of the children. Um, but the workplace really, since the Industrial Revolution, developed along men's lives and their needs. Um, and so now all of a sudden when a, women, a woman enters the, the workplace, you are seen as the anomaly if you fall pregnant. Um, but pregnancy is a natural occurrence and it actually takes two to tango. So... Um, you know, those arguments, I think, are very um, divorced from um, human beings and the human experience, and that really the, these types of changes do need to start filter, filtering into the workplace, and we have to um, not only accommodate but actually create inclusion, which is, is two different concepts. So you were saying that we've got a very good, like the Employment Equity Act is actually trying to to actually address some of these like sort of structural imbalances and things. How are they doing it? Well, the Employment Equity Act, um, you know, whether you love it or hate it, um, and and literally, and it could be anything in between as well, does give us um, a very, very good framework for monitoring these these societal changes that do need to occur. Um, you know, the, the this particular clause in, in, in the act that's been strengthened is, or the section that's been strengthened is, um, uh, open to all diversity categories. So, for instance, a man could also, under this Act now, claim uh, unfair uh, pay practices if a woman is paid more than him. So, you know, it cuts both ways. Um, and, and the Act gives, gives really good structure. There's a lot of issues around equal pay for equal value that our courts have yet to sort out because these are new cases. Um, 
And uh, in, in the South African Board for People Practices Women's Report that we've produced and is available for free for the public to download, um, in Chapter 4 we detail, Hugo Pinard um, details very clearly how you can go about um, you know, putting together such a case and what you need to know about um, who you're comparing yourself with um, and what types of, you know, sort of the mechanisms and the steps to go through. Um, so, yes, the Act does give a very good framework, and it is very useful. Um, and I think a lot of companies, that, well, the large companies most certainly have taken notice and have done gender audits and are busy rectifying where they see that there are issues uh, because, you know, in the States we've seen cases of legislation where companies have had to pay back the difference retrospectively up to 10 years back um, in the differences in pay. Professor, we were talking earlier about how how far behind South Africa lags comparing to the rest of the world, and I wonder if you could give us more specifics uh, in terms of how far behind we are lagging and you then compare us to different parts of the world. I, I was reading up um, an article just, just several days ago which, which released an index on the countries on the continent that have shown the biggest improvement in terms of the economy. And Rwanda was listed as the number one country on the continent that's shown the most, the most improvement in terms of the economy. And a large reason for that was because they said it's because they actively started including women, um, you know, in terms of educating them and making sure that they're included as part of the workforce. And surprise, surprise, all these improvements came along. Hmm. So yeah. how, how, how do we compare then to the rest of the world as South yeah. Africa? I, 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 South Africa, you know, this is also, again, it depends what measure you're using. And the World Bank is really, in the World Economic Forum, is really good at bringing out those reports. So that is available to the public to download um, too, and they use um, generic criteria. One has to take into consideration that statistics can... Um, you know, you can torture them until they confess. And, and I think that's quite important about trying to draw these comparisons. So the data sets that we have at the moment are loosely stated gaps, and they're not necessarily based on the same method. So it's quite difficult to really place South Africa other than these sort of global studies that have been done and are available on the, on the net. Um, South Africa as a country in terms of the SADC gender barometer report that came out recently is not faring very well in terms of gender transformation. And if we look, for instance, at that report, then Tanzania is the country that has done the most in terms of gender transformation and also gender pay parity. Now, if you look a little bit deeper in Tanzania, they come from quite a socialist-type political background, and so that might explain a portion of it. The other thing is that um, Tanzania's literacy rate of women is lower than that of South Africa. So, but their women's employment rate is much higher. So of the people that are literate, there are low levels of employment, um, unemployment amongst women. And so that pushes up their figure quite considerably. Whereas in South Africa, our literacy rate is quite high, but we have a very high unemployment rate of especially women. So, um, you know, we certainly have a lot more work to do. So we, 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 we fare better than a lot of the static countries. Um, on particular aspects such as, for instance, literacy. But one would want to ask what is the quality of education um, that, that happens, the quality of entrepreneurial education, which is a very useful 
um, avenue for women Still. to become involved in the economy. Um, and, and, and whether really we are supportive, where many, many studies have come out saying that there's a bias in terms of funding for entrepreneurs towards men, that women really find it quite difficult to find funding and, and project sponsors. Um, so, um, you know, Productivity South Africa is doing a lot of good work with regards to these aspects. But a lot of education and awareness creation has to be done. And I think as women at an individual level, South African women should start thinking about their own lives as not dependent um, on a male of any type, of way, be that a father or a husband or a brother, but really that they have a great level of self-agency um, and, and can do things for themselves, which includes making sure that you earn what you're supposed to be earning and what's rightfully yours. But as you were saying in, in your article, I mean... Asking about salaries <laughs> is yeah. one of the most difficult things. Like you can't you don't ask your colleague, "What are you earning?" No, it's like going it's through incredibly, a mind, It's like going through a, it's a like taboo. Field. It's a taboo. Yeah. <laughs> it's like asking them, you know, what color is your underwear today? You just never do it. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think you know it is a it is a sensitive issue. I mean, it's it's not easy to necessarily talk about this. Also, just because we've been you know accepting that this is a taboo, um, Simla brought out a fantastic book, and that was already in the nineties. Um, Where in Brazil they had a, a company, Semco, and what they did there is they did a lot of workforce education, a very intensive workforce education on economics, budgeting, and so forth and then ask employees to determine their own salaries, but do it in a transparent manner. So um, they would be given a budget and said, okay, who needs to earn what? And how the system starts self-regulating itself, um, you know, and, and, and people actually feel either that um, they're being done in because the other person uh, is not delivering on what they said they would, but it sort of starts equalizing and becomes quite a self, you know, an excellent example of self-management. So did they think that the CEO should be earning a hundred times what they were earning? <laughs> yeah, I think that's the big the, the big new thing, and we, we're finding that with research here at um, the Department of Industrial Psychology and People Management in our remuneration stream, Prof. Mark Basson is doing uh, research on that specifically and whether... CEO pay actually does, um, you know, correlate with company performance. And what they are seeing so far is it does. The next question I think is then, even if it does correlate with company performance, does the gap necessarily warrant? You know, is the gap necessarily warranted? Um, and I think that is the next big, big question. You know, how well, big, only in if other words, most of the CEOs are women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's another point. I mean, CEOs is the the position that's least occupied by women in South Africa, and that came out again in the South African Business Women's Association's Women in Leadership Census about four weeks ago, and uh, it's really dismal. Um, the women in directorships, for instance, um, also very low a number of women directors, and I think more disturbing is that those that are directors are being circulated amongst companies, so a lot of those women serve on multiple, multiple boards. Um, so it's not really spreading, um, you know, the, the, the participation of, of a wider group of women. Um, but, yes, those, those remain areas that we should be monitoring and monitoring closely. You know, I don't want to take away from, you know, there's a lot of women that say that why um, push for this type of reform because we're quite happy where we're at and we have a particular role. 
And I'm happy for those individuals that do want to fulfill a particular role in a particular way. But I think one should be mindful not to then create a stumbling block for those of us who wish to um, bring our unique contributions to the workplace in a, in, a, in a different way to perhaps what society um, is, is allowing us to at the moment. Professor Bosch, if we take sort of like a bird's eye view of the, the public and private sector and then you had to break it down for us in which industry specifically we're seeing the biggest uh, disparities between men and women and then also which industries are actually paying their men and their women fairly equally. Um, yeah. Do you do you have that information available for us in in terms yeah. of industries and the country? That again, what the information that I do have again is based on a private remuneration company's um, uh, statistics. Again, that would be limited in in the sense to the companies that were evaluated, but they have a relatively large database. Um, and mm-hmm. so, what, what what we do know for sure is that government salaries at the very senior levels are on par. So, a woman or man. Um, you know, in ministers, for instance, and so forth, members of parliament, those would be, those people would be earning exactly the same salary. But if you start moving down in government, even though the salary structure is, is published uh, and publicly available, um, you do start seeing, especially, for instance, at municipal level, uh, differences in, this, you know, disparities coming in, and that's largely ascribed to sex differences, meaning the, the social norms that are attached to being a woman and being a man, and that filtering into the workplace, and and really actually just plain discrimination. Um, so in government, in the government sector, it's better better regulated, it's more transparent, and so you tend to get a better level of equity. But as I say, in the lower levels, we do still see um, uh, you know relatively large disparities. Um, then if you look at the private sector, that, you know, is an open book because uh, you could have a private company and pay people very differently um, without anybody really ever asking questions other than the employees themselves. Um, so in the in the companies that are well-governed, have remuneration committees at sort of board level and so forth, certainly the, the fact that the act is in place makes for those board members to sit up and ask different questions because, um, you know, the, not only can the company suffer reputational damage, which would be huge reputational damage, but also that there are um, other penalties that would come into effect uh, through the Act. Hmm. So what can we do? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's a very long-term project, and then there's sort of more shorter-term things to do. So I think the very long-term project is societal uh, transformation, um, and, and that always takes a Time, but it also takes um, for different people with different levels of awareness to start talking, just dialogue on on these issues, um, and and to, to point out bias where where it occurs in your family, in your uh, group of friends, and 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 so forth. Um, then through the act again, there's a lot of interventions that happen at workplace uh, level, which I think is is hugely helpful in societal transformation in the long run. Uh, and those would be things like gender mainstreaming, just enforcing the compliance to the Act, which is not, you know, the best option because you really want to move beyond compliance into um, inclusiveness and inclusiveness for the right reasons. So, um, you know, the gender mainstreaming interventions, the whole uh, issues about sensitizing people around diversity and um, inviting in diversity, even to the level of just the diversity of thought, 
not only race, gender, and all of sort of the visible characteristics that we're chasing after at the moment. Um, and that requires of all of us to mature quite a bit um, and to really start, uh, you know, asking ourselves uh, where we stand with regards to this and, and um, just to be open to understanding other people's viewpoints. Well, I think that's a good note to leave it on. Professor Anita Bosch, thank you for joining us this afternoon and for giving us all the necessary information that we need to know. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for the invitation. Fantastic. Now, Aspasia, what I took away from that conversation is that clearly the next uh, position that I need to move into needs to be a government position. I'm um, going straight into Parliament. I think and you need to be a minister. I, you know what? Maps, minister uh, it of, seems to work at the ministerial listen, level. Minister of Basic Education is where I'm going next. My mother is a retired educator. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've got that I on my side. That's where I'm going next. <laughs> or communications. That's, that's a good one. All right. Well, you um, can spin it all. <laughs> well, enjoy the rest of your time in Greece. And uh, thank do, you. I will chat to you next week. Yes. Um, yeah. Do enjoy the rest of those cocktails. And um, are you getting a nice tan, Aspasia? Are you? Well, it's only been a day. It's only been a day, <laughs> my Bali. And I've just spent an hour of good sunshine time chatting um, salary discrepancies because I felt it was that important. All right. Well, then you definitely <laughs> deserve a drink after this. Then. <laughs> so uh, we'll be back with you again next week, Thursday on uh, Between Two Frames right here on CliffCentral.com. This is cliffcentral.com.